I'm Neil Sun Lim. I'm a 2009 Reynolds Fellow at the Gallatin School. Um, I want to just uh, give a little bit of my background so to give you a sense of where the question is coming from. So I, one of the things that I've been doing for the last several years is um, traveling around with a multimedia exhibit that is uh, like an art installation exhibit that's based on um, oral histories taken from Korean War survivors living in the United States, civilians, but um, Korean-American Korean War survivors. And uh, one of the things that we say about that exhibit is that it's an anti-war statement. And so I wonder if you could talk more about that comment that you made at the beginning that the books that you've written about war are anti-war statements and also uh, what role in your work as a historian rather than a journalist do personal stories play, both of civilians and soldiers? Well, that's a good question, too, and you're right, it does follow nicely. Uh, to answer the second part first, personal stories, whether they're the stories of uh, Dwight Eisenhower or some guy you never heard of, uh, play an absolutely critical role in what I do. I, I am not interested in weapons. I'm not interested in whether the platoon went left or right. I am interested in the fact that war and the extraordinary stresses of war is a great revealer of character at all levels. Uh, and in the same way that you can use a prism to see the inner spectrum of light, you can use the stress of war to see the inner spectrum of character. And that's what I do. That's what I'm looking at. Um, so, you know, that's the essence of narrative history as defined by me, at least, within the context of being a military historian. Remind me of the first part. Oh, yes, anti-war book. Um, yeah, that, I mean, that can be a glib, tossed-off line, right? Uh, but I feel it in my bones, and the more I write about it now into six books. The first book I did, uh, I wrote more than 20 years ago, was called The Long Gray Line. It was about the West Point class of 1966. And I spent a lot of time, they lost more men in Vietnam than any other West Point class. Uh, and they had come to West Point in 1962 as the leaders of their generation. They were propelled with exactly the same idealism that was sending people, their compatriots, into the Peace Corps at the same time, believe it or not, cut from the same cloth. And then they get out and they go charging off to a war in Vietnam and they get shot to pieces. And they find that they're no longer the leaders of their generation, they are pariahs within their generation. Uh, I think it was working that story through and writing that book that, uh, you know, gave me the understanding, the core belief that if you're not writing an anti-war book, you should be writing about Wall Street or something else. Uh, you know, if, if you're writing about military history, you've got to understand that the essence of it is suffering. And I'm aggravated by the triumphalism that we so often see in our own national history. Uh, World War II in particular is ransacked for evidence of our own goodness. I'm not saying we're, not, we're bad and that you should be looking at war for examples of our badness, either nationally or as a species, but the essence of it is suffering. And everyone who is part of a process that will commit the nation to war, which means all of us, 307 million collectively make that decision, uh, 
uh, have to understand that. So that's that's what I mean. Hi, my name is Karen Ross, and I'm a third-year law student at NYU. I know your son well. Oh, I'm sorry. He's <laughs> <laughs> um, quite the character, isn't he? He, yeah. he is. Yeah. <laughs> Let's not say any more, Karen. <laughs> um, a lot of us here are very concerned about storytelling and how do we communicate our stories or our visions for a better world. And so I'm curious, as a journalist, what have you found to be the key ingredients for making a good story? And secondly, uh, you mentioned how it's become more challenging to tell stories about war because people have become more disconnected from it. So how specifically has the storytelling changed as those disconnections have grown? Well, again, I'll answer the second part first, and I'll try and remember the first part this time. Um, uh, uh, storytelling is harder in some ways because attention spans are clearly shorter. Uh, there are so many things tugging at you from everywhere that it's very difficult. I write books that are 250,000 words long. Now, none of you have time now, if you do your slacking off in your schoolwork, to read a 250,000-word book. Uh, and this is an issue, I think, for the culture generally, that it becomes difficult to uh, convey something that has great richness and requires something of the depth of the Iliad uh, to convey when, in fact, everybody's, you know, doing this all the time. Um, uh, you know, so I think that that is a that's a big issue. My um, response to it is to ignore it. I do what I do. You can read me or not. I don't care. I really don't care. Uh, I like it if you do, and uh, the publisher really likes it. Uh, but I I feel that I cannot uh, tailor what I do to the fads of a culture that I don't completely understand, among other things. Um, and what I do seems to have enough resonance that there's enough feedback and so on. Writing, you know this, writing is a very solitary, very solitary. I live about four miles from here, and it's like I'm in the cockpit of my little boat every day, all day by myself when I'm writing. And so, you know, having a connection to readers is important. If you don't have readers, you don't have that connection. So I'm not completely blasé about it, but I, you know, I, I do what I do. Um, storytelling, I think, uh, you know, it is, it, it, it's, it's the oldest art. And it is a natural act for all of us, whether we're good at it or not is something else, but it is a natural form. Um, and it almost always, to go back to the question earlier, revolves around us, around people. Uh, you've got to find a way to work characters into it. Character is the essence of it, whatever kind of story you're writing about. Um, I'm, I spend a lot of time thinking about structure. Uh, I don't sit down and just wing it, <laughs> writing about World War II. I'm very meticulous. I spend a lot of time outlining. I'm about to end the research for the third and final volume of this trilogy I'm doing. I've been at it for two and a half years. And I will spend the rest of 2010, starting next month, building an outline. I go through all my notes. I've got seven or 8,000 pages of notes. And I decide where it goes or if it goes. And it's an index as well as an outline. I use words outlining software which I think is the greatest invention since the plow. 
I mean, it's really good. Uh, and, uh, you know, so it works for me. I mean, there are probably more sophisticated variants, but it allows me to put together and hold together a structure that is critical for writing an incredibly complex story, a story that will ultimately be 750,000 words. I've always looked on it, this trilogy is one book, one story, just asking the reading public to buy it three times. So <laughs> structure and character are the essence of storytelling. Whatever story you're telling, if you're writing a legal brief, and you're looking, my son and I have talked about this, and you're looking to engage whoever is reading it, and you can work elements of story into it, it can be very, very powerful. And uh, you know better than I, some of the greatest legal minds that we've had in this country are masterful storytellers. Um, I'm Joel Adrians from the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And uh, you had mentioned that you had gone through this transition from being a very successful reporter into uh, being a historian. You described it as going from craft to art. And I'm really curious to hear about um, what gave you the, the sort of, where did you draw your courage to leap into the unknown in terms of leaving something which you were very successful, in which you uh, had established yourself, and take on something that you really wanted to do, but which uh, was, you were, and where you uh, didn't have that basis? Well, thank you. Uh, it's a good question, and I have to ask myself that question uh, on occasion. Um, well, first of all, to, to be honest, I, have, I had a safety net. Uh, I was writing books while I was still at the Washington Post. I would take them. They're a very indulgent uh, group of people there. And uh, so I would take 18-month leaves to write the book on the West Point class or a book on the Gulf War. And so I saw that I, I could do it, that I had a knack for it, uh, that I could make money at it. Uh, and I felt confident that I could do it full time. Um, you know, I found, I suppose there's a midlife issue here <laughs> with most people at a certain age. Um, but uh, I, I lived in Berlin for three years in the mid-90s. I was the, the Berlin bureau chief for the Washington Post. And uh, at that point, I was, it was in my early 40s, uh, as with so many people, I'm thinking, is this the glide path I want to be on for the rest of my life? Is this what I want to do? Much as I like it, as much as I adore the people that the newspaper business attracts, my best pals, uh, is this really what I want to do? And, uh, you know, I, I thought of it then and think of it now as the effort to move from craft. There's nothing wrong with craft. That's not what I'm saying. But to art, the narrative art in my case. Uh, an effort to find a way, find a voice, find the wherewithal to uh, become uh, an artist of some sort, not to be too precious about it. Because the reward systems are much different. My relationship with readers, the ones I just said I didn't care about, <laughs> uh, are just totally different than any relationship that I had with newspaper readers. There's a commitment that somebody has made if they're buying a big book and reading it and they get invested in it and they get involved in it. Uh, uh, and um, perhaps most important for me, I found that as a writer, you know, you're looking for 
a voice. You're looking for your natural voice. And when I write for the newspaper, now particularly, I think, because I've gotten used to writing narratively, uh, I feel strangled. I feel like my voice is uh, an octave off somehow. And uh, it feels tinny. Uh, and you can't do the kind of thing that I was talking about. Structure is important in newspaper stories, too. I always make an outline when I'm writing even a day story for the newspaper. Uh, but there is a deepness and richness that you can approach as a writer in writing, in my case, narrative nonfiction. Um, and so, uh, you know, where did I find the... Uh, Courage is putting too fine a gloss on it, but um, it, it's a, you know, it just it's an impulse. You've got to do it. You've got to follow it. We only pass this way once, and uh, uh, you know, I, I felt fairly confident that this was the right thing to do. Um, Don Graham, I think you'll hear tomorrow, right? Who's a really wonderful person, and uh, the guy who owns the Washington Post. Uh, extraordinary man. And when I told him that I was going to do this in 1998, uh, he tried to talk me out of it uh, in his very measured, thoughtful way. And uh, after I finished the first book, and it was, you know, I had to learn how to be a historian on the fly. And at that point, he said, now you must do it. You have to continue doing it. And he's been a great supporter and enthusiast ever since. So, uh, you know, having a support system, I think, is important. I have a supportive wife. She works at the National Institute of Health. She's a science person. She doesn't quite get the writing thing, but she's uh, indulgent. Uh, and, um, you know, I think having support uh, is important, uh, wherever you find it, however, however it works for you. Um, and I, I've, I've never looked back. I've never had a second thought about it. It was the right thing to do for me. So, thank you so much. Thanks.